We're seeing a trend in our culture today toward watching more of video clips and movies instead of reading books. Christopher Ingram in the Washington Post recently wrote, the share of Americans who read for pleasure on a given day has fallen more than 30% since 2004. Uh, how many of you still enjoy reading a good book? Oh, wow. We have some readers. That's great. Let me put this plug in for our library, church library downstairs. <laughs> it's always fun to watch and see who's checked what out. But your imagination is drawn into a, a story uh, when a good author writes. He'll captivate you as he introduces you to the characters in the, in the plot and as they interact with each other. And you get to know those characters. Some of them, in literary terms, are called flat characters and some are called round characters. The round characters develop through the story. You'll learn more about their personalities. You can almost guess how they're going to respond in different circumstances that come up during the story. You, you feel like you know them. Well, let's remember that John is not making up things as he's writing these words in the book of Revelation. Jesus said in Revelation 1:19, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. He's telling John what to write. The Holy Spirit is moving him to write the exact words that we need to read today. When we come to chapters 12 through 14 in the book of Revelation, we, we look at this as another parenthetical uh, passage that's here to help us understand the events that are going to take place uh, during the second half of the tribulation. Uh, when we were in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, that's when the, the seventh trumpet sounded. And that marked the beginning of the second half of the tribulation. But those events don't really start happening until we get to chapter 16, when the angels pour out the seven bowls or vials of wrath upon the, upon the earth. Well, in Revelation 12 and 13, Jesus, through the Apostle John, introdu introduces us to seven prominent characters. They're the round characters that are key personages during the second half of the tribulation. Let's get to know their identities, and as we do, it'll be easier for us to understand what's taking place. Each of these seven personages represents something. Remember, the primary rule of hermeneutics, a literal whenever possible. Um, so uh, the personages, that's not a word that we think of very often, but uh, if you look it up in the dictionary, a, personage, a personage is a character in a literary work. And so that's why they're called the seven personages in Revelation. In chapter 12, we're introduced to the first five. But uh, let me just list uh, all the seven and identify uh, whom each represents. The first is the woman, and she represents Israel. The second, the red dragon, represents Satan. The male child represents Christ. The archangel Michael uh, represents the angels. The offspring of the woman represents the remnant of Israel. Those are the ones that we'll see in chapter 12. And then when we get to the next chapter, we find the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. Uh, the beast of the sea represents the future world dictator or the Antichrist, and the beast uh, represents the false prophet. So as you look through those, the second, the sixth, and the seventh are persons that form what are referred to as the unholy trinity. 
We have Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. So let's start in chapter 12 and begin our study of the seven personages of the tribulation. So this is uh, entitled Part 1, and uh, we'll have Part 2 as we come to the last two personages. So in verses 1 and 2, we have the woman. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. There are two wonders of, uh, in heaven in this passage. The one we just read in verse 1, the next one will be in verse 3. Notice the phrase in verse 1, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, speaking of this woman. And in verse 3, and the, there appeared another wonder in heaven, and that's going to be the dragon or Satan. The, the word wonder here is semeon, and it's usually translated as a sign or a miracle. There's another word for wonder that John could have used, and that's the word teros, and it's often found with the word semeon. John 4:48, Jesus said, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. So, here, without the word wonder, we just have the miracle or the sign um, in, in both of these uh, verses, Revelation 12, 1 and, and 3, we can think of these two signs uh, that, that are miracles that produce wonder or amazement. And so the end result is the wonder. And John Wolverd says, as signs, they were symbols of something that God was about to reveal and usually contained an element of prophetic warning. Though this sign was seen in heaven, the events which followed obviously occurred on earth. So these, these are signs in heaven of things that are taking place on earth. There are four more events that John calls signs with that word simeon in the book of Revelation. In chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, the beast of the earth does great wonders. Again, the word wonders, he does great miracles, great signs. In chapter 15 and verse 1, there's another sign from heaven. will be when John sees the seven angels with the seven plagues or the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out on the earth. Again, this is a sign. And then in chapter 16 and verse 14, from the mouths of the unholy trinity that we mentioned, came the spirits of devils working miracles. In that time, the word semeon is uh, translated miracles. And also in chapter 19, verse 20, the false prophet that wrought miracles before them with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. And so that just helps us understand what that word wonders is when we see it in, heaven, in, in the scriptures here. Signs in heaven would be these, uh, these miracles or signs. Notice how this woman appears. She's clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. On her head is a, a crown of 12 stars. And Walverd says that this alludes to Joseph's dream in the Old Testament. Remember back in Genesis 37, 9 through 11, Joseph was telling his parents, his brothers, about the dream that he had. And those heavenly bodies represent Jacob and Rachel, therefore uh, identifying the woman with the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. 
Walford goes on to say, this identification of the woman as Israel seems to be supported by the evidence from this chapter. So the 12 stars correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Joseph, when he was having his dream, only had 11 stars bowing down. Of course, that's because he was the 12th. But here we have the, the, the nation of Israel in, in the very early beginnings in the, the sons of Jacob. Persecution she faces in this chapter is indicative, this woman, is indicative of the persecution that Israel will face in the last days. You'll see that the woman is seen giving birth to a child. And in verse 5, we recognize that, that child as the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will reason that since the child is Christ, the woman should be Mary and not Israel who gives birth to the Messiah. Custer explains that the Messiah came through Israel, and let me quote him, the Virgin Mary was the specific Jewess through whom the incarnation was accomplished. And so, again, probably this uh, identification of the woman here is Israel. Warren Wiersbe agrees. He says, this symbolic woman can be none other than the nation of Israel. It was through Israel that Christ came into the world. He uses Romans 1, 3, Romans 9, 4, and 5 at that point. Uh, in Romans 1, 3, Jesus is called the seed of David. In the Romans uh, 9, 4 through 5 passage, it's uh, concerning the flesh, Christ. Um, so um, Paul is referring to Israel, who are the, 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 the fathers of whom um, were Christ, uh, children of Israel then being the, uh, the woman here being Israel and, and Christ being the, the child. Um, let me go on to quote Wearsby. By further compare, comparing the description of Revelation 12, 1 with, Revel, with Genesis 37, 9, and 10, that's this passage compared to the passage speaking of Joseph's father and mother as sun and moon and the brothers as, as stars, the identification seems certain. It's always important to distinguish Israel from the church in prophecy, especially. Um, some uh, commentaries that are amillennial or postmillennial um, confuse Israel and the church. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, while there is a unity of the people of God, this does not wipe out the dispensational and racial distinctions. So we can keep them separate especially here in, in the end times. Remember, the purpose of the tribulation period is to bring Israel back to a belief in Jesus Christ. Well, where is the church, the bride of Christ at this time? Well, we've been raptured. And so um, there is a distinction in the end times of how God deals with, different, uh, uh, with, with his church and with the nation of Israel to whom he's promised the blessings that will come about in the millennial kingdom. So that's the woman. Let's look at the dragon in verses 3 and 4. He's the second personage. And there appeared another wonder, we said that was a sign or a miracle, in heaven. And a, behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now the prophetic interpretation of this dragon is found in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, 
verses 7 and 8, and also in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 24. Uh, Daniel has a dream, and he's dreaming about, uh, the, in this vision, in this dream, he sees four beasts. And this dream is prophetic. It goes beyond the ancient empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Remember the, the Belshazzar's dream and the figure there. But in the last days, it goes beyond that into a prophetic sense, the fourth beast represents the revived Roman Empire. So this beast represents Satan's control over the world empires through the, uh, during the Great Tribulation. Let me just read those uh, verses in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. We'll give a quote from John Whitcomb, and then we'll look at verse 24. Daniel 7, 7 and 8. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast... Dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse or different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom were the three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were, the eye, were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. John Whitcomb writes, A greater contrast between two connecting verses can hardly be imagined. In verse 7 and 8, we see the, fruitful, uh, the, the frightful fourth beast with its blasphemous little horn. This is the devil at his worst. And so we see this revived empire, the fourth beast, and, uh, and Satan giving power to that. In verse 24 of Daniel 7, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise, or shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So three out of these ten kings that rise to power in the end times are subdued by the Antichrist. Some see this only as historical. I believe it will be a league of ten nations that will unite in the future. And as we look around, maybe we can see some of those ten nations already being formed. And those would be the ones that, uh, that Satan will will use to fight against Israel. So the prophetic interpretation of this dragon. The appearance of the dragon, remember the dragon is Satan. Uh, he, behold, a great red dragon. A great, I believe, describes the power of Satan. We don't, uh, we don't approach Satan lightly. Uh, God has defeated him, but he is powerful. He's not omnipotent. But he fights against the church. He fights against believers. He fights against individuals. And so this describes his power, a great red dragon. Red could mean several things. Because of the bloody persecution that he brings against God's people, this could be one of the meanings of the word red. It could be because that's his, his desired color. We see in chapter 17 and verse 3, 
a woman riding upon a scarlet-colored beast. What does red make you think of? Maybe a presidential speech that was made recently. Red makes us think of, of war, of anger, of bloodshed, perhaps the fires of eternal punishment. And so the appearance of the dragon, he's great. He's red. In Revelation 17.3, I mentioned that about this woman. Uh, let me just quote it. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The seven heads uh, that are mentioned here in Revelation 12, perhaps a reference to Rome, uh, the, a city built on seven hills, now the revived Roman Empire with Satan in control, the ten horns, a horn in scripture is generally a symbol of power, of strength. There are ten nations that arise, uh, as I said, in opposition to Israel. And then seven crowns. This is Satan's attempt to give to himself honor and authority and power that aren't really his. Dr. Custer writes, the symbol is appropriate. For the dragon is a cruel and heartless beast. If Christ bears the crowns of the universe, or the crown of the universe, the devil will try to outdo him with seven heads and seven crowns. But he has made himself into a monstrosity of evil in trying. So that's the image that we have of the dragon, the appearance. Look at his rebellion in heaven. Uh, and I believe this was his past initial rebellion against God in the first part of verse 4. And then in the second part of verse 4, his desire to destroy the child of the woman. And that's been an ongoing battle. So verse uh, 4 in the beginning, his tail drew a third part of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. I remember in Satan's original rebellion against God, he took with him a third of the angels in heaven, and those angels became his followers or demons, as we would know them today. Now, most of you say, well, when he was cast out of heaven, what's he doing back there? Uh, well, he still has access to heaven. Remember, he came before God to uh, test Job. He's called the accuser of our brethren in this context in Revelation 12.10. He's seen as accusing us before God continually, day and night. It's an ongoing process that Satan has of going before God and accusing believers. And all of that is going to stop when Satan is eventually cast down. Uh, we see that happening in, in chapter 12 and verse 9. His desire to destroy the child of the woman in, in the second half of verse 4 and the dragon stood before the woman, which had already was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, Satan has always attempted to, to fight against, to try to stop the work of Jesus Christ. He was behind Herod, telling the wise men to, to bring him word when they found the Christ child so he could go and worship him also. He wanted to put an end to any opposition, a king of the Jews that would be in opposition to him. He moved Herod to kill all the boys to and under in all of the Bethlehem uh, area, the vicinity of Bethlehem. 
He tempted Christ in the wilderness. He stirred up the mob in Nazareth to hate Jesus. And he thought when Calvary, when Jesus was taken to Calvary and finally crucified, that he had finally won. But when Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished, he was not saying I am finished. He was saying salvation's work has been completed. It's finished. This was a shout of victory. Christ was not defeated. He completed redemption's work on our behalf. And so what Satan thought was his final victory was really Christ's victory where he uh, defeated Satan. We come now to the third personage, the male child, in verses 5 and 6. And she brought forth a man-child, the word man there is male and gender, who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. The child here is Christ. Henry Alford in the Greek New Testament says the man-child is the Lord Jesus Christ and none other. Jesus is the one who's going to be ruling during the millennium with a rod of iron. And in verse 27 of chapter 2 in Revelation, we read, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessel of a potter shall they be broken to shivers into pieces, even as I received of my father. That's actually a fulfillment of what was written back in one of the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 2 and verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 19 and verse 15, we read, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So this child, obviously, is quoted here, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is caught up to God and to his throne. Walvert says the catching up of this man-child to God and his throne seems to portray the ascension of Christ. As you read different books and different explanations of this chapter and a lot of the things in Revelation, you'll find that there's some disagreement but uh, I believe this, this ascension is probably, um, as Walvert said, what he's talking about when he's caught up. So the child is Christ. The woman, who we identified as Israel, flees to the wilderness. And again, you'll find uh, prophecy preachers telling you all about this and, and the preparation that's being made in the wilderness for, for Israel. But this is where God has prepared a place for her. The Jews who refuse to worship the image of the beast will flee into the wilderness and they will look in the desert places to hide. Uh, probably in the middle of the tribulation, when the Antichrist shows his true colors, that he's against Israel, Israel will recognize he's not their Messiah. And those who are believing Jews will recognize that and will flee. Notice it says that they should feed her there um, 1,260 days. That's uh, 360 days times three and a half years. If we take 30 days in a month, 
That's where we come up with the 360 days. The, we have the 1,260 uh, days. So this is the, the last half of the tribulation referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, most conservative Bible scholars are going to, to say that. Seiss, Newell, Ironside, Gabeline, Smith, uh, Tim LaHaye. Um, some think that they are going to flee to Petra. That that's where the Jews will find uh, protection against the Antichrist and his persecution of them. There's an American evangelist by the name of W.E. Blackstone who spent $8,000 to have boxes of Bibles placed in Petra. And others talk about uh, uh, stockpiling food supplies for this very event. Well, I'm not that concerned because God who provided manna in the wilderness can certainly take care of Israel at this time, and he will sustain them. His protection is described in chapter 12, verses 14 through 16. Wiersbe says, We don't know where the sheltered place will be, nor do we need to know. But the lesson for all of us is clear. God cares for those whom he wants to use to accomplish his purposes on earth. How are we doing? There's a, lot of, there's a lot here, isn't there? Let's look at the fourth personage, the angel Michael, the archangel Michael. In these verses, uh, 7 through 9, we find a battle that takes place in heaven. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. And here we have an identification of who that dragon is. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world and was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And the two sides are specified at the very beginning in, in verse 7. Michael is, and his archangels fought against the dragon. And then you change sides, and, and we see the same, uh, same thing said. The dragon fought against Michael, uh, Michael's angels, and did not prevail. That is, Satan did not prevail against Michael and his, and his angels. Verse 8, there was found no place for them in heaven. The identity we mentioned in verse 9, he's called uh, by all these names, the dragon, the old serpent, the devil, which is uh, literally an accuser, and then the word Satan, which is literally an adversary. This battle and this casting from heaven into earth will take place in the middle of the tribulation. It will include Satan and all his demons. As I said, he was cast out of heaven at the original sin, but he still has access to heaven. But here, he will, he will be cast out once and for all. And finally, uh, when we think of where Satan will be cast, we go to Revelation 20 and verse 10, and it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, uh, the, the beast and the false prophet are. Um, they're there at the beginning of the millennium, but Satan is allowed to, to roam until his final judgment. Uh, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that is the end of Satan. And 
Obviously, there's going to be rejoicing over that, and that's exactly what happens when we come to verses 10 and 11. The rejoicing over God's salvation and the end of Satan's work, all of his accusations that are taking place even now in heaven, all of that will be over. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Why? For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. We have some interesting statements that are made here. First notice in verse 10, this loud voice from heaven announces God's victorious work. Salvation, soteria, safety, deliverance, not only spiritual salvation, but all of the protection that God provides. Strength, the word is dunamis, his ability, his power. These are attributed to the one who deserves this. Salvation, strength, the kingdom of God, which is his right to rule. Everyone will recognize it at that time. The power of his Christ. Notice the word his there. Jesus is God's Christ. What is Christ? The chosen one. Jesus is the Messiah of God. And so this loud voice from heaven announces God's victorious work. The downfall of Satan is also announced. The accuser of our brethren is cast down. No more accusations against us. We are proclaimed to be overcomers. Today Satan goes before God and he says, Did you see what that person did who says they're a believer? How can they ever be a Christian? And so this accusation will be finished forever. This is wonderful news. And so the downfall of Satan is announced. The accuser of the brethren, brethren is cast down. We're proclaimed to be overcomers. How do we have that victory over Satan even now? How can we have it? Well, it's specified here. Fourth, uh, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, the word testimony there is martyreo, and so it has to do with evidence or a record, a witness. And third, by our willingness to die for Christ. Did you see that? They loved not their lives unto the death. That's the extreme proof of the fact that we believe, that we follow Christ, that we will not recant. And those that have gone to the martyr's stake have said, I will not recant. You can burn me now and I'll be in the presence of Christ. We're willing to die rather than recant. From, from this section, let me just, I know it's, it's almost 7 o'clock now, but I know. Um, how do we, this is, this is what we need. How do we overcome Satan's accusations today? There are three points here. And Satan is accusing. He, he's accusing you. Did you see, God, what they did? Did you notice how they're living what do we do? Number one, remind him that our sins are forgiven through Christ's sacrifice. Every sin is forgiven. Every sin has been washed away. We are clean, not by our merit, but by the blood of the Savior. 
We are clean through the work of the cross. Secondly, remind him, Satan, that we have a testimony of salvation. We have a record. We can go to verses in the scripture and find those proof texts. John 10, 28, Jesus said, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. There are many more. Remind him that we have a testimony of salvation. Third, confidently say, I would rather die than deny Christ. I'm willing to live and die for the one who loved me and lived and died for me. In verses 12 and 13, we come to the hostility of the devil, who knows his time is short. Let me just read those two verses. Therefore, rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Why? Because there's no accuser of the brethren anymore. But notice, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, he's been cast out, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Again, this would, be, this would be Israel, the remnant of Israel. Those in heaven will rejoice when Satan is cast out, banned from returning forever. Those who dwell on the earth and the sea are not. There's woe to them. Why? Because the devil has this great hostility, great wrath. Why does he have that? Because he knows his time is short. When he saw that he's confined to the earth and the sea, he persecuted Israel, the woman who brought forth the man-child. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached an entire message on this one verse, Revelation 12, 12. The title of that message, and you can find it on sermonaudio.com and listen to the whole thing, but the title of the message is Satan in a Rage. Satan knows his time of rule is coming to an end, his power, and he's not happy about it. He's very angry. He has, as the text says, great wrath. In the message, Spurgeon turns to those who are believers, and he has an application for us. He tells us to be aware that our time on earth is also coming to an end. There's going to be a time when we won't be able to knock on our neighbor's door and give them the gospel. We he says we must not be half-hearted in our service to Christ. Let me read from his, his uh, sermon, just this one section. My friend, if you want your children brought to Christ, speak to them, for they will soon be without a father. If you wish your servants to be saved, labor for their conversion, for they will soon be without a mistress. If you desire your brother to be converted, speak to him, for your sisterly love will not much longer avail him. Minister, if you would save your congregation by the Spirit of God, seek to do it at once, for your tongue will soon be silent. Teacher in the Sunday school, if you would have your class gathered into the good shepherd's fold, treasure up every Sabbath's opportunities. For in a short time, the place which knows you now shall know you no more forever. <laughs> he writes, quicken your diligence by the example of the prince of darkness. Shall we not learn wisdom from his subtlety and zeal from his fury? 
shall he discern the signs of the times and therefore bestir himself and shall we sleep on? What a great point that Spurgeon makes from this verse. Know that our time is short. Live the hymn of Charles Wesley, a charge to keep I have. I'm going to keep the fifth personages uh, personage for the next time because of time. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, as we see the end approaching, I pray that you'll give us that incentive to tell others that the time is short. And I pray that we, will, we would be faithful and uh, be willing even to have our testimony be listed among the martyrs and be willing to die for you. I pray, Lord, that you'd um, dismiss us now with your blessing. Give us opportunities this week to speak to others, and we'll give you the praise for what you'll accomplish through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.